The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good evening to those who are here this evening and to those who are joining us online. We uh, hope that you find this a blessing and uh, encouragement to your heart this evening as we enter into this new year. If you'll turn with me now for our scripture reading this evening to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. This morning we were in Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah the prophet is speaking about the rod which would come from the root of Jesse, speaking of the coming Messiah. That is his second coming in which he will establish his throne, his kingdom. And this evening... Uh, we continue into chapter 12. So if you'll follow along with me there this evening here in person and online with me now. The Lord's word says here in verse 1, And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me. Your anger is turned away and your comfort, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust in you and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day, you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted, sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Not a very long chapter this evening. Six verses. Yet profoundly, we see here in this chapter the kind of attitude, the characteristic of the nations and the peoples of the earth as they behold the king. There will be no doubt in that day that they will be able to excuse the fact that he has done excellent things. It will be known to the earth, (laughs) whether they believed it We're not at the beginning. When the king comes and sits on his throne, it will be known. As verse 6 says, they will cry out and shout, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. This evening, as we think about the Lord's table, we um, began a series a few weeks back now already on the means of assurance of salvation and as I considered what we were going to think about and, and be talking about this evening, I, I realized that there's really no reason to go anywhere else because this topic, the subject of the means of assurance of salvation, is pertinent to the Lord's table. We take of it and observe it because we know that we are a part of God's children. We know that we have partaken in his death and in his resurrection. 
in that confidence that we have, that we have partaken in those things, is a result of the assurance, the confidence that we have that we are his children, that we are a child of God. And so we continue that study this evening, part two, as it were, of the means of assurance of salvation. And this is the truth that we're going to consider this evening for a few moments before we partake. And that is this. The believer's assurance rests upon the promise of his eternal security. The believer's assurance, that is the confidence that he has, that he is in a right relationship with God, rests, or we could say is grounded upon the promise that he is eternally secure. The Bible teaches that the believer can obtain assurance But we asked ourselves this question last time. How do I, as an individual, obtain that assurance in a personal way? I can read God's word. I can read the promises of God. But what makes it personal so that I know in my heart I have a firm confidence that I am saved? We said there's two parts to this personal assurance, and that is this. Personal assurance rightly arises from the Holy Spirit's illuminating work. So that the believer, this is what illumination does, so that the believer eagerly accepts and embraces God's word as the truth. Personal assurance also arises from a life that is presently persevering in faith Doctrine and practice. Now, both of these means, if that's what we can call them, means of assurance of salvation, are both works of the Holy Spirit. The illuminating work is the Spirit's work in the believer, and also a life that is presently persevering in faith and doctrine and practice, that is good works, is a result of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. So you have his illuminating work, so that you eagerly accept those truths, and then you have a sanctifying work, which is you embracing those truths and living by them. Those are, that is how personal assurance arises in us. That, those are the means of assurance. Last time we considered a few things as well as the question, why do I experience doubt, though? If I know, according to God's word, that I am saved... Because I have believed in him. Why do I experience doubt even as a believer at some points in our lives? Well, we said there are a number of reasons that cause these feelings to arise, none of which is unique to one person. You may feel as if it's unique to you in that moment when you have uncertainty or doubt. And you may think, why do I have this doubt? I don't think brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so has you know, this kind of doubt. Why me? Well, let me encourage you, if I can, by this fact that no reason of uncertainty or doubt is unique to one person. These are all things that we face, all of humanity, especially as we are talking about specifically believers, face. And some of these things we said that allow or that cause doubt to arise are self-deception. Self-deception. Another reason for doubt, perhaps, is belief in wrong doctrine. You've been swayed, perhaps almost unconsciously, if we can say, or innocently, 
by someone else into thinking what is true is not true. (laughs) We've talked about self-deception for a while now. Pastor has did a little series on that a while back. And so perhaps you realize that you have been been believing something that the Bible is actually not teaching. And in that moment, you may consider, am I actually saved? So belief in wrong doctrine often can cause doubt or uncertainty. Thirdly, another reason for doubt is a life presently characterized by sin. A life presently characterized by sin. Someone that is living in a state of sin will have doubt, should have doubt. Perhaps it may take a while before they realize that what they're doing is wrong. And when they come to that realization, it is important that they go to Christ, repent. But at the moment in which they're living in that sin, that can cause fears and doubts of salvation. Perhaps we could say more specifically, maybe there is a sin that you want to overcome, but it's difficult. It's not as if you don't care. But it's a struggle. And in those moments of desiring to follow Christ, there's still this sense of doubt. Why would I sin like this if I truly believed? Why would I live like this if I call myself a Christian? Fourth reason for doubt and uncertainty about salvation is just personal doubt. We looked at Mark 9:24 when a man who had a child, his own child who was suffering, asked the Lord to heal this little one. And he said to Jesus, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. I don't think that man was doubting the power of Christ. But in human means or human possibilities, it looked insurmountable for his child to be healed. And so, in a moment of weakness, he said, help my unbelief. Give me the confidence that I need, the confidence that's lacking. Fill it up to full measure. Another reason for doubt and uncertainty is a life not displaying good works. Perhaps you feel as if your your life, your Christian life, your ministry life is just kind of flattened. And you come to church and you feel like you're not really serving. You feel like you're just kind of going with the flow of things, how it's been going for you the past year or two or whatever it may be. You just don't seem to make any progress in that area. That can often cause sediments of doubt and uncertainty. Another reason for such doubt is temptation. Temptation. We're presented with a possibility of sin and temptation arises in our life and the temptation itself may cause us to think, why am I even being tempted? You know, this shouldn't be an issue to me. I shouldn't even have to be tempted. I shouldn't even be tempted. It shouldn't even be a, a thought in my mind to want to do whatever that temptation is, we could say, asking me to do or wanting me to do. 
But last time we talked about this, we wanted to, we made clear that there's a difference between being tempted and falling to temptation. The fact is, every believer still continues to be tempted. That is a result of the fall of mankind. And so we cannot totally mitigate the possibility of temptation. The important thing is not allowing ourselves to fall to the temptation. Christ himself was tempted without sinning. So we must be careful not to think that temptation itself is a reason to doubt. Every believer still faces temptation. It's just how he responds to it that matters. Another reason is trials in our lives. We may wonder why, if God loves me, would he allow me to go through such trials and difficulties? If God truly loved his children, why would he allow this to happen? Why would he allow my my child to get sick? parent to pass away a spouse to divorce me trials and difficulties can cause us to doubt our salvation finally another reason for doubt is just the general uncertainty about the sincerity of a conversion can I say experience perhaps for so long you've rested in the idea that when I was a child, I, on this day, I, I put my faith in Christ. I said the prayer, I'm saved. And then from then on, you really never began to act like a regenerated person. And now you're in your adulthood or young man or woman. And you have just general uncertainty about the sincerity because you don't, you don't see the fruits of your salvation. You don't see a life that is presently characterized by a persevering faith in doctrine and practice. Whatever the personal reason may be for such feelings, feelings of fear or doubt or uncertainty, the Christian does not need to remain in the state of doubt and fear. Assurance of salvation produces the opposite of kinds of feelings. It doesn't produce doubt and fear and uncertainty. Assurance produces peace and hope and joy and fellowship with the Heavenly Father. And that's the kind of life a Christian should be living. Ones with sediments of those things, not doubt and fear. As we review a few things from last time, for the sake of the time that's elapsed from then to now, we also looked at the at personal reasons why or let me say this, why a person can be falsely assured of his salvation. Why, what reasons are there that someone can be falsely assured of their salvation? Let me just list a few of those without going into too much detail. But first we said that people can be falsely assured of their salvation just because of visible morality in their lives. Many people falsely rest on their good behavior. In reality, there seems to be people in the world that are honest, upright, and kind. Is there not? Sadly so, it seems that there's some people that act more Christian than Christians do. And so, though we must be careful not to assume then that mere visible morality is equal to 
salvation by God's grace and the way in which he has created us there is still a sense of morality in the world however little it may be and people who act upon that morality that's within their personality does not mean that they are saved another possible reason for false assurance is mere intellectual knowledge and while knowledge of the truth is necessary for saving faith saving faith pertains to more than mental acuity. We mentioned the passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, where the author speaks of people who have tasted salvation. They have tasted the work of the Spirit. They have seen the Spirit at work in people. They know all that they could about God and about the gospel truths, but without ever embracing it personally. There was an ascent of mind, but not of heart and will. This may be a reason for false assurance in someone's life. Another reason is just mere religious involvement. Many people are falsely assured of their faith because they rely upon external appearance of godliness that likens them to true possessors of saving faith. Don't be deceived, though, that believing that the appearance of godliness is proof of saving faith. Many people have that appearance. They come, they attend, they are involved, maybe in every ministry possible. But a mere appearance of godliness in itself is not full proof of saving faith. They may be able to deceive those sitting around them, but they will not be able to have the personal assurance that a true saved individual will have. Another reason for false assurance is mere guilt over sin. They believe just because they have a guilty conscience that they are saved. However, there is a distinction between guilt over sin and sorrow that leads to repentance. I think we can all agree that our world is full of guilt-ridden people who acknowledge that they have done things that are wrong. However, they lack a conviction, a sorrowful spirit that leads them to a point where they call upon Christ and repent. Mere guilt over sin is not the same thing as a sorrow that leads to repentance. Without internal regeneration, that is the Spirit's work in a believer to bring them to Christ, that guilt is only an expression of the human conscience in them. Conscience that has been marred by their sin nature so that perhaps to some extent they have guilt but not true sorrow over their sin. People can also be falsely assured of their salvation because of just mere, can I say, feelings of assurance. The emotions that play on their heart and on their mind. Personal assurance is subjective by nature. We said that last time. But the means of assurance do not rely upon mere feelings. Someone may say, I know I am a Christian because I feel like I am or because I remember perhaps uh, that feeling of 
joy when I said the prayer to be saved. However, this is faulty reasoning if you're relying solely upon that as your means of assurance. True enough, personal assurance is experiential. And to not have feelings of joy or peace and hope would be strange. As a believer, our heart should be full of joy, happiness, and hope. But those feelings are not the grounds nor the means for assurance. They're the results. I know I am assured, and so I am joyful. I have peace. It's not the other way around. Finally, as we already alluded to, people can be falsely assured just because they of a time of a decision. They rest their, their assurance, their confidence solely on the fact that they said a prayer, that they walked to the front of the church, or that they, they, they sat at the, at the bedside of their parents' bed and were led in a prayer. So often we hear people say things like, well, I know I'm a Christian because I remember when I signed the card, or I remember when I prayed a prayer, or I remember when I walked the aisle or went forward in church. A person may remember exactly what happened and where they were when it happened, but that does not necessarily mean anything. Our salvation is not verified by a past moment in that sense. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that to remember a certain time in which you prayed and gave your life to Christ is unimportant or unsignificant or, or that you shouldn't go back to that. And use that as a part of your testimony when you share your love for Christ with others. But what I am saying is that that a simple prayer or going forward in a church service or signing a card or going into a prayer room or being baptized or joining the membership of a church are not things which we should place our confidence in when it comes to our salvation. Those things are all good and well, but they are not the means of assurance. They are not, they are not uh, what we should put our trust in when we say that we are saved. As uh, we look in just a few moments at 1 Corinthians 11 as we partake in the Lord's table, in verse 26 of that chapter, Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's 1 Corinthians 11:26. And our participation in the Lord's table is a means of proclaiming our faith in Jesus and the finished work of the cross. And as verse 26 implores us to do, that is, commands us to do, we continue to do this until the Lord himself returns. Now, this morning, Pastor Odell had uh, Brother Thurman read from John 14.3, where Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a beautiful promise that is so comforting. But why is it comforting? It is comforting to us because we believe that we are one of those whom Christ is preparing a place for. 
and who will come and receive you to his own, as his own. That is why it's comforting to us, because we see that promise in Scripture and we say, that is a promise that pertains to me. We believe this promise of God. We believe that it pertains to us. Why do we have such confidence, though, in this promise? Well, that is because we believe this tells us that we are eternally secure. If Christ is going to prepare a place for us, and he says that he's going to come back and take me to him, to this place, then that means I am eternally secure in his hands until that day. What is eternal security? It's that promise or truth that once Christ has saved us, there is nothing that can undo that transformation. Your personal assurance that you are saved and that he will receive you to himself rests upon the promise that in the meanwhile, until he returns, nothing can undo what God has done to you. That has saved you. So this evening I want to consider the grounds for our, our assurance, which is eternal security. I just want to look at just a few verses that teach us about this. Keeping in mind the truth that we're looking at this evening, that the believer's assurance rests upon the promise of his, of his eternal security. Meaning, if we don't have the promise of eternal security, there is by no means that we can have personal confidence. Because at any time we could lose our salvation, so how would we ever have confidence in the first place? So we look at this idea of eternal security for a moment. First of all, I want to bring our attention to the fact that eternal security is an objective fact. What do I mean by that? Well, although the doctrines of eternal security and assurance go in hand in hand, there, are, there is a distinguishable difference between the two. Assurance of salvation is subjective by nature. It's, it's the confidence that we personally have that we are saved. Whereas eternal security is a objective fact. It's there in Scripture. It says it's true, it's true. Whether I believe it or not doesn't matter. It's objective. It's there, it's true, it existed before I existed. And so eternal security by nature is an objective fact. The truth that salvation of sinners, that the salvation of sinners is, uh, and that they are eternally secure in the hand of an infinite and mutable God is where the topic of assurance begins. Without the idea of, or the belief in eternal security, there's by no means we could ever have confidence of our own salvation. Although the believer's assurance rests heavily on the means of his salvation, just because he may not experience the vibrant and joyful assurance that the believer can have does not directly indicate his lack of Genuine salvation. 
John Murray once stated that the grounds of assurance are as secure for the person who does not have full assurance as for the person who has. What I believe Murray is saying is that the grounds for assurance, that is eternal security, is a truth that is objective. It is stated in the Bible as fact, and so it is. Whether a person feels secured by this truth does not change its legitimacy. It's there. It's true. It's objective. So, we must consider that idea first, that eternal security is an objective fact. Secondly, eternal security is God's promise to keep or preserve every believer to the end. That is the definition. That is what eternal security is. That's what it does. It is God's promise to keep or preserve, that is, every believer to the end. The promise of God to keep those who believe is a prominent is prominent throughout the New Testament. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34, John chapter 6, verse 35, Romans chapter 5, 9 and 10, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Philippians 1, 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. I have a number of verses I could go on, but I think you get the idea that the New Testament specifically assures us by this promise that we are eternally secure. Although each of these passages would uniquely strengthen the promise of Christ's persevering work, there is not the time this evening to adequately do that now. So let me just turn uh, your attention to John chapter 6 for a moment, and we'll consider just two examples in two passages here. John chapter 6 to begin with. Again, we're looking at the idea that not only is eternal security an objective fact, but also it is God's promise to keep every believer to the end. That is what eternal security is. It is that promise. John chapter 6, verse 37. Let me begin in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That is the promise of salvation, the inheritance there. Verse 36, But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all of excuse me, that all that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That is the promise of eternal security, that Christ will raise those who are his up on the last day. He will preserve, he will keep them to the end. The believer is promised that Christ will keep those who come to him. 
What does this mean, though, practically or personally to us? This means that those who have exercised genuine faith in Christ alone will never be forsaken by him or taken away from him. Let that just settle on your mind for a moment. Nothing and no one, not even death, can separate you from his hand. You are in his grasp forever. The one who comes, as it says in verse 37, is the one who has already believed in verse 35. Therefore, the point here is not merely that Jesus, merely that Jesus will welcome those who God will call, but that he has promised to never cast out those who are already in his fold. He will not cast out those whom the Father has given to the Son. This promise to keep those who are saved is commonly called preservation. His work of preservation. This promise to keep those who are his ought to bolster confidence in us and especially in those who are uncertain of their salvation. One of Christ's roles, his present roles, is to preserve his people according to the Father's will. That's what Jesus says here in these verses. If it were even possible for Christ to lose one, which it is not, Christ would be disobeying the Father's will or displaying that he is incapable of accomplishing this duty. But however, of course, he is not incapable and he is obedient to the Father's will. Therefore, the one who has trusted Christ knows that he possesses salvation because he knows that God will keep him eternally in it. Because Christ is obediently following and fulfilling his Father's will. By the very fact we know that Christ cannot disobey the Father's will, we can know that we are eternally secure because Christ is obediently keeping and preserving those whom God has given to him. So our eternal security doesn't rest in anything we do, but in the Savior's obedience to the Father's will. Another passage and example of the work of Christ preserving those who are his is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you'll turn with me there for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul writes to the Corinthians, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, that is Christ, will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul communicates yet another promise of God to keep those who are called by him. 
here in this passage. And the remarkable truth that is being given here is that this is unmistakably a promise. It's a promise that Christ will confirm us to the end, as it says in verse 8. It's not a wish. It's not a let's hope it all turns out okay sort of affirmation. It is a direct promise to the believers that Christ himself is the one who will confirm you to the end. This is not a wavering promise that will shift over the course of time. This is a solid, objective fact, as we noted already. It is a sure promise that Christ will sustain every believer to the end. So to the believer who feels weak or doubtful and in despair about his eternal state, this means savoring the preciousness of God's promise and will for Christ to preserve and keep each individual believer through this life and into eternity. In addition to noting the sustaining that is taking place, that is, Christ sustaining us to the end, that's what really confirming to the end means. He is sustaining you to the end. And in addition to that very fact that's taking place, we need to observe also who is doing the sustaining work, as we've already alluded to. We are not the sustainers of our eternal security. We are not the ones that sustain ourselves to the end. It is who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sustainer. It is not our task, our job to sustain ourselves to the end. In ourselves, we are incapable. We are not the ones who have redeemed ourselves from our sin, who have completed the work on the cross to provide salvation, and therefore we have no power, no capability to do that kind of work. It is only Christ. Confirmation spoken about here in verse 6 is, is where Paul is revisiting the salvation of those who believe in the Corinthian church. And it is at that moment that he, that is the believer, receives God's grace. And the testimony of Christ is confirmed in him when he believes. Once we are in Christ, the grace of God is ours. The human response to that grace is what is being written about here in verse 6. It is the grace of God that is operative in all those who have responded to the gospel message. Likewise, in verse 8, the word confirm is used to declare that God guarantees that all who embrace the gospel will stand guiltless before God on the final day. This promise is for all who believe and therefore all to provide confidence to the believer who is doubting. Now, finally, one final thought. We've talked about the idea that eternal security by nature is an objective fact. We talked about the fact that eternal security is God's promise to keep or preserve every believer to the end. And thirdly, eternal security is possible only because of Christ. As we already alluded to, Paul says in verse 8 that Christ will sustain all believers to the end, presenting each one before God as guiltless. 
This is not because the Christian's lifestyle after salvation is perfect and spotless. It's that Christ will present you as blameless and spotless. It is the righteousness of Christ that every believer will be sustained to the end. We do not stand before God pleading our spotlessness or our blamelessness. We declare and we plead the case of Christ who died on our behalf. There is no accusation that can be made against the believer who stands before God that will undo what Christ has already done for him through his death and burial and resurrection. As we consider the book of Corinthians and as our pastor has been teaching us, the Corinthians were far from being a perfect body of believers. Nevertheless, Paul is offering them significant reassurance that those who have received the gospel in power and truth are sustained to the end. They are kept, preserved by Christ. So then as we conclude this evening and partake in the Lord's table, let us consider that the possibility of our assurance, that is the personal confidence we have that we are saved, is grounded in the promise that we are eternally secure. Without that objective truth that we are kept for eternity, we would be unable to have the full confidence of knowing that we are saved. So we thank God that he has given to us his word, which proclaims these promises, which we embrace because of the Spirit's work in us to illumine our minds to the truth so that we embrace with full assurance that what Christ has done and what God has promised in his word is true and pertains to you. Let's pray this evening and then we'll continue our evening tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises that we saw in John as well as in 1 Corinthians. And Lord, we ask now as we As we take of the cup, the vine, and the bread which resemble the shedding of your blood and the breaking of your body, that is the, oh Lord, the, the scrutiny, the lashes, the pain that you, Lord, that you did for us that you willingly suffered through for our sake. Lord, help us to remember that, to examine ourselves this evening, knowing with full confidence that we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes and that he comes back to take him, take us to you, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you for that promise that you are preparing a place for us to come again to receive us to yourself. Lord, bless now this time. In your name we pray. Amen.